Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is to love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray together. Father, as we now turn our hearts and our minds and our attention on your holy word, we would pray that you would illuminate the scriptures for us. God, we are so thankful for the gift of your word, which is a steady guide for us, which shares with us the amazing story of your love for us and how you've saved us through Jesus. And it instructs us on what it looks like to live lives that are godly, to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to you. It even instructs us on what the church should look like and what our life together under the Lordship of Jesus is meant to look like. So Lord, we have great need this morning to hear from you, to be instructed by you, and we invite you now by your Spirit to minister to us, give us understanding. But Lord, we also want more than just head knowledge. We want heart change. We want to be a people that are made ready as the bride of Christ for you. We want to be a people who are glorifying to you and who are holy and set apart for your purposes. So give us understanding, but also produce transformation. Change us, Lord, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, you may be seated. So Friday night... We had our first wedding held inside our church here since the launch of Apostles, which was awesome. It was for Eric Rojas and uh, Haley Horton. Haley is the daughter of Andy and Paula in the back. Congratulations, you guys, on seeing your beautiful daughter married on Friday night. Um, We can't congratulate them, obviously. They're off on a honeymoon, a well-deserved honeymoon. Um, but we can congratulate mom and dad. And we were very blessed to host that wedding and have it here. And I was blessed because throughout the process of pre-marriage and then actually doing the wedding, I was able to work hand in hand with a family member of the Hortons who's a Baptist minister and has been for a long time. He's a man in his 70s now. And he officiated the ceremony for his, I guess it would be great niece, I think. Great cousin. Great cousin. Um, And so he officiated the service, but him and I were able to work hand in hand for the last couple of months in preparation. And he was just super encouraging. You know those like older dudes who are just fired up about life and they're fired up about Jesus and it just kind of rubs off on you? That's the way this guy was. And I'm like, man, this is really encouraging. 
But ironically, a number of times throughout this process, he would stop and he would tell me that I was encouraging him. And I'm like, what? Wait, hold up, you're encouraging me. What do you mean? Well, what he was saying is that it was encouraging for him to see a next generation pastor who was, at least in his estimation, so we'll put this all on him, but at least in his estimation, remaining faithful to sound biblical theology. And as he shared that with me a couple different times, I could sort of sense his angst as a very seasoned pastor who's getting really close to the end of his journey as a minister full-time, kind of his angst for the next generation of the church. He was concerned about the gospel, and he was concerned about this next generation faithfully carrying forward the gospel in the churches. And in some ways, his angst over the church approximates the angst that the Apostle Paul himself felt 2,000 years ago for the churches. And we see that angst reflected in his pastoral epistles, as they're called, which would be First and Second Timothy, and also Titus, which comes right after that in your Bibles. Of course, the Apostle Paul and Pastor Bob ultimately know that the church will remain faithful to the gospel. And that the church will not completely swerve away from the truth. In fact, Jesus our Lord himself promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So they do know that ultimately the church is going to make it. Ultimately the church is going to survive and make it to the finish line. But that's not to say that individual ministers or churches or even entire denominations are going to stay on the rails In fact, we know that they won't. Some will be drawn away from the true faith. And so the Apostle Paul, at the time of writing this letter, is an older pastor, getting very near to the end of his life. Commentators, and they say that he was, this is probably a letter that was written in prison or right after being released from prison. And he was elderly at this time, or at least close to the end of his life. And so as an older pastor, Paul here is writing to one of his closest ministry associates, who was a young man by the name of Timothy. And the reason he's writing is to try to encourage Timothy to be faithful, to hold fast to faithful teaching, hold fast to the gospel, and also root out any error in the church. You'll notice in verse 1 there that Paul is identified as the author. And we have no great reason to doubt that he was. In fact, the universal testimony of the early church is that Paul wrote this to Timothy. He tells us that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. You'll notice in verse 1, by command of God and Christ Jesus. That would be as opposed to by the command of some other person or the decision of some human agency. He's saying, no, 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 I'm an apostle because God in Christ commanded me to do that. He set me apart. See, for the apostle Paul, he could never get too far away from the road to Damascus. This dramatic conversion experience where he was converted and he was called by Jesus. He was set apart by Jesus to be an apostle and to help lead the church into the future. 
And so Paul's able to say right at the start of this letter, this is who I am. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, but guess what? This isn't because I manufactured this. This isn't because some other people gave me this job. I am an apostle of Jesus because God called me to this. And then he tells us who he's writing to. He says, this letter's going to Timothy. I love how in the ancient world, they always put who was writing a letter and also who the letter was to right at the front of the document. I don't know why we don't go back to this. Nowadays, people will wait till the very end of an email or the very end of a letter to finally say, this is who I am. (laughs) Or sometimes they don't even sign it at all, which isn't helpful. You ever get one of those text messages from a number you don't recognize and they just start going off on something, but they don't even tell you who they are? Then you have to awkwardly respond, who dis? (laughs) It's like, "Who, who am I even talking to? Just tell me who you are before we start trying to conversate with one another. Paul endearingly calls Timothy, you'll see here, his true child in the faith. A reference to his discipling of Timothy and playing the biggest part in helping Timothy to grow up into the man of God that he was. See, Timothy was a young man that Paul met on his missionary journeys in a city called Lystra. In fact, on Paul's second missionary journey, Timothy tags along with him. And we start to see as you put together the pieces of the New Testament that Timothy ultimately becomes one of Paul's closest ministry partners. And Paul starts entrusting him with a lot of great spiritual and ministerial responsibility. In fact, Timothy represents Paul on several important missions to Thessalonica, Corinth, the city of Philippi. And now here we see even in the city of Ephesus. So this was a young man, but he was given great responsibility by the Apostle Paul in the church. And the reason for that is because Timothy had served faithfully, and he had proven himself to be a faithful follower of God. And so he proved himself over time. And this is the pattern that we see in Scripture. This is the pattern that we see in the New Testament. In fact, in chapter 3, which we'll get into in the future here, when Paul is laying out for Timothy the qualifications of those persons who should be entrusted with spiritual leadership in the church, here's one of the things he says. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. In other words, Timothy, before you guys lay hands on somebody in the church, make sure that they have proven themselves to be faithful. Make sure that they have served the Lord faithfully and demonstrated their devotion to Jesus. Now I know from meeting with many of you in this church that some of you desire to serve in ministry. Now... All of us should desire to serve in ministry, but I know that there are some in this church who desire to serve in ministry leadership in the church. Listen, that is great. In fact, we read in the New Testament, if somebody desires to be an an overseer, he desires a good thing. It's great to want to serve in the church. It's even great to desire to help lead the church in its ministry. But my encouragement to you this morning would be simple. Be faithful. Be faithful. Just serve. Just take time to just serve where you're at right now. 
to love the people in this church well, to invest in people, to meet needs that you're able to meet in the church. And guess what? In time, if it's God's will, He'll grant you greater and greater opportunities and greater degrees of influence in the church. Now, verse 3 tells us that Paul left Timothy behind in the city of Ephesus. This was one of the most significant, important, influential cities in the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean. The reason he left him in this city was to deal with issues in the church at Ephesus. Did you guys know that churches have issues? Now, if you're really blind spiritually, you might walk into a church like ours and go, this seems like a great church. At least I hope that's your estimation. And in some ways, this is a great church. This is a loving congregation, and we're doing everything in our power to be faithful to the gospel. But did you know our church has issues? Every church has issues. Some greater than others. The church at Ephesus had serious, serious, lethal issues. And so Paul set out to put those issues in order, to correct things that were going wrong, and he's writing to Timothy to do that because he himself could not presently be in Ephesus. What are the issues that Paul is going to deal with in this book? Well, there's at least five. If you're a note taker, you can jot these down and you're going to see us unpack these as we work through this short letter to Timothy. So what are the issues? Well, number one, false teaching. False teaching. We see Paul dealing with this in today's text, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. He gets back into false teaching again in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And then a third time, he comes around dealing with this issue of false teaching in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. The second issue is disorder in worship. Did you know that there is supposed to be order in our worship together as a church? So Paul deals with that in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Number three, he deals with appointing qualified leaders in the church. So it's very important that we have the right types of people in places of leadership in the church. And he deals with that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The fourth issue is relationships within the church. He talks about widows being cared for. He talks about how we relate to elders in the church. He talks about how uh, servants were to relate to their masters, the Closest thing today would be employees to their employers. What does that look like if we're all Christians? Does that change the way we relate to each other? So this is all happening in chapter 5, verse 1, all the way into chapter 6, verse 2. And then fifth and finally, which this is totally irrelevant to our city and our culture, but he deals with the dangers of materialism. Imagine people who are really into money and stuff. So it's not going to be very practical as you can tell, but we'll give it a shot. He deals with that twice in chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, and then again in 17 through 19. Now the purpose statement of this entire letter is in chapter 3. So we're going to be going back to this theme over and over again, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, hey, I hope to come to you soon. Okay, I don't like that I can't be in Ephesus to help you. I hope to come. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of 
the truth. That's His purpose. If I can't be there personally, Timothy, I want you to know how to behave and how people ought to behave and how the church ought to behave because the church is significant. The church matters. Friends, I want to tell you this morning, the church is the most important institution on planet earth. Whoa. Pastor, what about the United States Supreme Court? That's been in the news. What about the government? What about militaries? The church is the single most important organization, institution on planet earth. Because all those other things are going to pass away, but the church will be with Jesus forever. Now, of these issues that Paul deals with, this is significant, look at what his first order of business is. It's false teaching. And it's not only his first order of business, but guess what? It's the most recurring theme throughout this epistle. False teaching. Verse 3, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Not to teach any different doctrine. Friends, family, listen. This reminds us that what a church believes is the most important thing. Well, well, Daniel, what about how they live? Yeah, that is important. But did you know that the way that we live flows out of what we believe? What we believe as a church is the most important thing. Let me put it differently for you. If we are disorderly in our worship, if we appoint less than qualified leaders, if we mishandle our relationships or we mishandle our money, then we've definitely lost our way. But if we turn to a different gospel, we have lost everything. There is nothing more important in the church than what we believe. Now notice Paul tells this young pastor that there's a problem in Ephesus. There are people teaching different doctrine. And he says, charge them to stop doing that. Now this is, this is significant. Because he's saying that there's different doctrine being taught. Different from what? <laughs> well, the answer would be this, that there is already a standard of apostolic doctrine by which all other teaching could be measured against. Even at the time of the very first churches, there is a standardized body of content, of teaching, of belief about who Jesus of Nazareth actually is and what He actually came to do through His life, death, burial, and resurrection. And that's the standard for the churches that we measure all teaching against. And He's saying the problem going on in Ephesus is that these false teachers are teaching something contrary to the teaching that has already been handed down. So really all Timothy had to worry about, and all you and I have to worry about, is doing what Paul told Timothy to do in his second letter. This is 2 Timothy 1, 13-14. Where Paul writes, make up doctrine for yourself. Oh wait, wrong translation, okay. What does he really say? He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Check this out. Here's the key. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, you're not going to make it up. It's not about that. You don't go figure out what the gospel is. 
No, Timothy, you've been given something. You've been entrusted something. And your job and the job of every single church until Jesus returns is to guard the deposit. It's to faithfully steward that message. To make sure that we remain faithful to apostolic preaching about Jesus. This has not changed. Just as the church at Ephesus, just as this young man Timothy had a standardized body of doctrine by which he could test all doctrine, guess what, friends? You and I have that as well. This book that we're all holding in our laps this morning, this book is the standard by which we measure all teaching and doctrine. And this is one of the most important things that Protestants believe. We believe that all of our belief, all of our practice, all of our theology, all of our doctrine is ultimately tested against this book. So that we don't measure it by later so-called revelations as the Mormon church or Jehovah's Witnesses would have us. That also means that we don't measure it by church tradition, which the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church would have us. Now that's not to say that tradition is meaningless or insignificant. No, 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 no. I never want to go there. Listen, church tradition matters. It's important, deeply important. And it's helpful in interpreting the Scripture. And it's helpful in living the Christian life. But here's the key. Even our tradition needs to be measured against the Bible. Because tradition can get off track and Scripture is our only hope of correcting it. You know, Jesus Himself had to deal with this in His ministry. Because although the Jewish people had God's holy word, they had developed, which is natural and normal, they had developed tradition. But at the time of Jesus, that human tradition had actually come in conflict with the written scriptures that God had given to them. Check this out. I want to show you this. Matthew 15, verses 1 through 7. See if you can pick up on what's going on here. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And now he's going to quote some scripture. For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And here's another command. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother... What you would have gained from me is given to God. He's referencing a problem where people, instead of taking care of their elderly parents, the religious leaders were saying, no, 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 give all your money to the, the temple because that's more significant. Jesus is saying, you say if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. And Jesus says in conclusion, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Do you see the key there? What did Jesus do? He was able to analyze traditions that were developing within the religion and then put them up against the written word of God and he was able to evaluate it and say, no, 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 no. This is where you have gone astray. 
Friends, for us, again, the Word of God that you have in your lap or is sitting on your smartphone this morning, this is our standard for teaching, for doctrine. It's an authoritative body of doctrine that we have. And listen, if somebody else comes along preaching something different, preaching another gospel, we have a responsibility to stop that just like Timothy and the Ephesian church. And when I say we... I mean we. I mean every single one of us that call Apostles Church home. Did you know I'm not the only one responsible for sound doctrine in the church? Praise God for that. You're responsible too. And as I've said before, if I begin preaching a different gospel than the one that the Apostle Paul handed to this very Ephesian church, At the beginning, which was this, here's the gospel that he gave them, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If I start preaching something other than that, you have a responsibility to fire me and get yourself a new pastor. And don't give me a pension on the way out the door. Just be like, we're done with you. We're done. You have transgressed. we got to charge you to stop preaching different doctrine in the church. Y'all need to throw me out if that happens. Yes. <laughs> but Alan, the key is like, if that happens. Can, don't get too overexcited there, man. Got to be careful, you know. Get myself in trouble up here. And make no mistake about it, friends. The false teaching that was existing here in these churches in Ephesus really was misrepresenting the gospel. I mean, this wasn't like peripheral issues that Paul's dealing with. The things that were being taught in this church were threatening the very essence of the gospel message. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look closely at the nature of the false teaching. Notice down in verse 7, we read this interesting statement, that they desired to be teachers of the law. That would indicate to us that these were Jewish teachers. Okay, these were Jewish teachers in the church. So far, not a problem. (laughs) In fact, the Apostle Paul himself is Jewish. Not a problem. So they're Jewish teachers of the law. Also, not a problem. In fact, look at verse 8 really quick. Now we know that the law is good, he writes, Okay, so not a problem. The law is okay. The law is good in and of itself. So what is the problem? Well, first let's read the rest of verse 8. The law is good if, here comes the clause, the condition, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Evidently, these false teachers in Ephesus were misusing the Old Testament law. The reason, according to verse 7, is that they were without understanding. Not a compliment, right? People are without understanding about the things that they're saying and the things that they're making confident assertions about. In other words, these guys were coming across like guys who had it all figured out. Have you ever met someone like that? All the wives are like, yeah, I could think of somebody. Looking over at the husband's. But Paul can see the error of their ways. Not your husbands, but the false teachers here in Ephesus. 
Paul tells us elsewhere that the law of God is like a tutor meant to bring us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. So evidently, they were using the law in ways that was not actually bringing people to Jesus. Additionally, here's what they were devoted to. Verse 4, they were devoted to myths and endless genealogies. Myths and endless genealogies. Now, nobody knows for sure what Paul's referencing here. Like, what does he mean here as he talks about myths and endless genealogies? But we do know this, that genealogies really mattered to Jewish people. Now, today, family trees and genealogies are making a comeback. They're becoming more interesting thanks to Ancestry.com and their DNA testing. Right? I mean, it's, it's fun to figure these things out. Like, who, who, who are my ancestors and where have I come from and what can I learn about my past? It's fun to know these things. Uh, my grandfather, who lives in Pennsylvania, a couple years ago, he traced um, our family tree all the way back, the Hoopers, all the way back to the late Middle Ages in England. Um, now, this is going to be a big letdown for my kids, but we didn't get the name Hooper from being exceptional basketball players. We got it because we made hoops and rings, which served a purpose, right? And was a great way, I'm sure, to make money back then. But uh, for my six and four-year-old athletic sons, that's not going to really strike them as cool. So, but it is interesting. That's where we got our name from. But you need to know for the Jews, genealogies weren't just interesting. Genealogies were essential. For the Jews, genealogies actually staked your claim in the chosen people of God and all the blessings that God had promised to His chosen people. So it really mattered to be able to say, hey, I'm actually Jewish authentic, authentically, and I can prove that to you. Here are my papers, so to speak. And so genealogies really mattered. And these teachers are spending their energy, they're devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Bible commentators point out that there were a number of books written in and around the time that the apostles were living that were based on myths that tried to like more fully develop or complete Old Testament genealogies, specifically the genealogies that you read about in the book of Genesis. Um, One of these examples is the book of Jubilees. It dates from about 135 to 105 BC, and according to John Stott, it supplies us with the names of all the children of Adam and Eve, of Enoch's family, of Noah's predecessors and descendants, and of the 70 people who went down to Egypt. All of this is based on myth, of course, because the Old Testament provides us with none of these details. Is that the sort of thing that the Apostle Paul is referring to in verse 4? Well, it's hard to know for sure. We may not know exactly what it is that he's referring to, but we do know this. We know what it led to. Notice that this devotion to myths and endless genealogies promotes, look at the text, speculation or uncertainties. Then down in verse 6, we read that they were wandering away into vain discussions or pointless discussions. A bunch of discussions that weren't taking them anywhere important. And not only that, but according to chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, they also led to pride. Look at this list of sins. Pride, controversy, quarreling, envy, dissension, slander, 
evil suspicions, and constant friction between people. How many of you all would like to go to a church like that? (laughs) Or that's what exists. Just pride and controversy and slander and constant friction among the members of the body of Christ. And maybe some of you have been in a church like that and you know if you're a spiritual person how painful that is. To have that be your experience constantly. That's what the false teaching was producing in Ephesus. Notice what it wasn't producing. It wasn't producing faith. And according to verse 4, faith is what our stewardship from God is supposed to produce. And friends, listen, at the end of the day, this is what Paul cares about. And this is what we should care about. As stewards of the mysteries of God, we should be concerned about a gospel that produces saving faith. And that gospel, of course, is a gospel of God. A God who created you to live in relationship with Him. A gospel that speaks of man's sin. Where we said, even though God has done nothing but good for me, I'm going to go my own way. And I'm going to reject God. And I'm going to try to figure it out on my own. I'm going to try to make it work myself. I'm going to resist His commandments. I'm going to suppress my conscience. I'm going to do wrong things. And we, through our own sin, created a separation between ourselves and a loving God in heaven. But a gospel that goes on to say that God in His infinite love, instead of saying, well, you made your bed, now sleep in it. No, that's not what God said. In His infinite love, He had a plan that He set in motion from eternity past to send His own Son to live the righteous life that you couldn't live and then to sacrificially die on the cross where He bore the wrath of God, the punishment of God that we deserve. He bore it Himself. And He took the consequences of our sin, which ultimately is death, and He buried it in a grave forever. Because three days later, He rose triumphantly over sin and death, and now He stands to offer us eternal life, and He gives us by faith the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who helps us to live the life that God has called us to live. That's the Gospel. And our response to it must be faith. Paul would not have these false teachers in the church distracting people from this main thing, a life of faith in the Son of God. And so what did Paul say to Timothy? He said, charge these people to stop teaching this stuff. After all, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. Charge them to stop teaching that because guess what, Timothy? The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The teaching of these false teachers led to controversy, pride, quarrels. And Paul says, Timothy, that is not the way of the Gospel. What we are trying to teach in the churches and what all true Gospel preaching produces is love. And it's a love that is actually flowing out of, notice this, this is so significant, it's flowing out of a transformed interior life. Now we're getting to the heart of the good news that God has for the world. What the Apostle Paul 
is concerned with is not just behavior modification. That's not good enough. The gospel is much too powerful for that. Did you know that other religions can modify your behavior? Did you know that the fear of going to prison or the fear of a spanking, if you're young enough for that, can modify your behavior and make you stop doing certain things or start doing other things. The gospel is way too big for behavior modification. That is not the essence of what God is trying to do in the lives of people is just make you a little bit better. That's not the gospel. He says that the gospel changes us at our core and it transforms you from the inside out. Do you see that? Look at verse 5. This is so significant. The aim of our charge is love, but not just a superficial manufactured love, a love that actually flows out of a brand new interior, flows out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Church, listen this morning. Did you know that the gospel of Jesus Christ targets your heart? Because did you know that your behavior flows out of your heart anyway? So yeah, should Christians be moral people? Of course. We should be the most moral, righteous people in the world. But not just for the sake of morality. Not just as a bunch of rule keepers that are doing... No, no, no. What Jesus and what Christianity is actually about is a complete overhaul of the total person starting in the heart, turning your heart to love God, turning your heart to love your neighbor out of faith in Him. This is what we need to be about. The religiosity that Jesus battled in His own ministry misunderstood this. Listen to what Jesus says to the religious leaders in Matthew 23, 25 and 26. Woe to you, He says, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First, he says, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. Do you see the logic of the gospel? Do you see the way that that works? Don't be like the Pharisees. Let me just kind of polish up the exterior a little bit. Let me put on a front. Let me come to church and make people think I'm really nice and that I really care and all brother, all pray. That's not Christianity. When you come into a relationship with God the Father by faith in Christ and you're joined to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart and He rocks your world. He transforms you from the inside out. He gives you a pure heart. He gives you a good conscience. He gives you a sincere faith. And based on that, love becomes the new way of life for the followers of Jesus Christ. Christianity is about heart transformation. At its deepest level, it's about faith in the Son of God who kept all the rules for us, who died in our place to forgive us, who rose again on the third day to deliver us and gives us the Holy Spirit to transform us and lead us in a life of faith, which according to verse 5, is a life of love. Church, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that Apostles Church is going to stand on preaching over and over and over again. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, this is boring, can we move on to the real spiritual stuff? You don't get it yet. (laughs) 
You don't get it yet. There is nothing more spiritual than what we're talking about right now. Yeah, 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 but I need to know about my marriage. Yeah, yeah, but I want to know about my purpose. Guys, listen. There's a place for all of that in Christian teaching. But again, the essence of all of that, the root of all of that is faith in the Son of God and union with Him which gives us His Spirit that transforms us into brand new people who can live a brand new life. This is the good news that Christianity has for the world. It is so much bigger than don't live like that and start living like this. It's God wants to have a relationship with you. And He wants to transform you from the inside out. And He can do it right now through faith in His Son. So here at the very beginning of Paul's letter to his young protege, Timothy, we have two practical tests that we can apply to all teaching. First is the test of faith. Is the teaching in accordance with the message of the gospel handed down to us by the apostles, recorded in the Bible, calling us to faith? Is that the teaching? Or is it just human ideas, opinions, or speculations that lead us to pointless discussion and debate? That's the test of faith. The second is the test of Love. Does the teaching promote unity in the body of Christ? Does the teaching promote love one for another as brothers and sisters in the family of God? If it passes these tests, we receive it with joy. If it fails these tests, we reject it and we root it out for God's glory and our good. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for a Gospel that is so big that it handles every aspect of our lives and of our existence. We're thankful, although it's painful at times, that the Gospel is so big that it penetrates into the deepest recesses and corners of our hearts and our interior life in It changes us because You change us. God, we are so thankful this morning as Your children that the Gospel is a message of love. Yes, it also is a message of judgment that is coming upon the world. But beyond that, it's a message of love. A love that was so great that You sent a Savior to deliver us from judgment. And we're so thankful that You gave us a way of escape from judgment and it's a way of entrance into relationship. It's a way of entrance into joy. It's a way of entrance into eternal happiness through a relationship with You. And this morning, we as a church, we as individual believers want to once again declare to You, God, that it's this Gospel that we're believing. It's this Gospel that we're staking our lives on. It is the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, on whom we bank all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith for all of our lives. And Lord, we pray now that You'd continue to transform us, that we would be a church full of love, flowing out of pure hearts and good consciences, 
and a sincere faith. And I pray for every person who walks into this church or who meets us at the grocery store or who sits next to us at work, that they would feel that love too. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you now. And we ask that you do these things in us. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.